Welcome everyone to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Last Week in Texas podcast. We're here again with Michael Smith. And Michael has a, a whole host of, uh, I think what he described as teaching moments for us uh, this week. So Michael, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Wayne. It's, it's certainly been a fun week. And it is the last week in Texas because the whole state's shutting down tomorrow for our winter, winter storms. So maybe you'll see us next week, maybe you won't. <laughs> Um, after spending my, my life growing up in the panhandle of Texas, I'm not sure that a, a, a martial winter storm scares me, but uh, I understand freezing rain. Well, so Michael, um, we, we were talking about teaching moments and things that lawyers do for themselves and to themselves. Um, you want to start with a uh, motion for leave to amend invalidity contentions. Yeah, um, we talked about one of these motions last week, and fortunately, we came up with two more orders on this out of Marshall this past week uh, on motions for leave to amend uh, infringement contentions and invalidity contentions. And let me start with the invalidity. Here, the defendant was seeking leave to supplement with some additional information that it obtained from third-party subpoenas. It was limited to background and support for systems that were disclosed in the original contentions, and the plaintiff probably shouldn't have opposed this one. Uh, Judge Gilstrap agreed that the defendant had been diligent in supplementing and that the delay was just caused by the inevitable time necessary for third parties to respond to subpoenas and provide non-public information regarding prior art systems. So there's an order saying, yes, you can amend your invalidity contentions to add the things that you get through discovery. We had another uh, case out of the Marshall Courthouse last week where Judge Payne ruled on uh, a, a plaintiff's uh, motion for leave to amend its infringement contentions. And the interesting thing here was it was just one document that was received from a third party. And the defendant was, was claiming this is only important if the original contentions are wrong and they have to change to save their case. I mean, very theatrical objections, which uh, the judge wasn't very receptive to. But the teaching moment here is not just don't be a jerk when a party wants to amend, but it was that the defendant hadn't explained how it was prejudiced. The plaintiff noted the defendant hadn't asked to brief additional terms or construction, hadn't said we need to go back and need to change terms or constructions or anything else. So the defendant complained about the amendment, but they were given an opportunity to show prejudice uh, and, and they didn't. So that's kind of a double lesson there. Number one, uh, make sure the record's clear that the other side is not providing something short of striking the contentions. And number two, don't be a jerk. Well, Michael, as we, we move on, there was uh, Judge Gilstrap had a, a motion to dismiss uh, against uh, direct and indirect and willfulness. It was just a, a big motion. Yeah, and, and we see those a lot at the beginning of, of cases. And I, I mentioned this because it's a good case for uh, the Marshall judges 12B6 standards on when you've adequately pleaded direct and indirect infringement. In fact, earlier this morning, I was reading the same kind of order uh, by Judge Albright in Waco that we'll probably talk about next week. The only thing that got granted here was the um, uh, plaintiff's claims of pre-suit willful infringement. And as a matter of fact, I was just on the phone earlier this morning talking with a co-counsel who had read the case, and he was saying, well, what was the point? Um, that that really wasn't going to go anywhere anyway, so why bother with the motion? So again, this is kind of an educational order in that it tells you what the standards are, and it knocked out the thing that 
the plaintiff probably wasn't going to be able to predicate uh, willful infringement on anyway. So, Michael, we kind of go through this. There was another interesting procedural motion on a, on a motion to sever. You don't see a huge number of those come through. Well, and, and this one, this is one that arises out of uh, one of the cases we talked about last week where there was a motion to stay because of what was going on at the patent office, and the court ruled on the motion to stay. Well, that was one where the patent office was going to uh, uh, reissue the patents uh, following amendments. So the parties came in and said, Judge, we, we agree that the lead case should be deconsolidated as a result of this stuff coming back from the pat patent office. The difference is the plaintiff said, well, but let's keep doing discovery in the lead case. And the defendant said, no, we want it stayed in all respects. And the resolution was, well, you're both wrong. Uh, instead of deconsolidating the lead case and stay it, what we're going to do is we're going to sever the claims regarding the patents that we don't have those certificates back on, and then we'll go forward on everything else. So he maintained as consolidated everything else with respect to the two patents that were good to go. And the, the mental image I've got here is every movie about the Battle of Midway where the, the guy's out on the field saying everything that can fly needs to get in the air. You have to be aware, that's kind of Judge Gilstrap's approach. His focus is on getting the disputes to trial. So when the party, he, he saw things very differently than the parties did and said, look, let's go forward with everything that we know there's not an issue on. Uh, because to paraphrase Winston Churchill, uh, the statement that nothing focuses the mind like being shot at, nothing focuses settlement discussions like having to go to trial on something. So that's something to keep in mind when you're going to the court and saying we need to rejigger things. Realize the court is not looking, this court is not looking to take a week off of trying cases. In fact, we all know Judge Gilstrap is unhappy if all the cases fall through so that he has a week set aside for a jury trial and there's no trials left. So be aware he's looking for ways to get the taxpayers value for their dollar uh, having that courtroom there. Um, so when you go into him and you ask to rejigger a case like this, be aware he he's not going to just look at, well, either you win or you win. He may find a third way. Well, continuing with Judge Gilstrap, uh, in the Acorn case, he gave a, a pretty strong reminder uh, about prejudgment interest rates and when those issues need to be raised. Right, and, and this was a case where I initially got excited because it said it was a J-Mall, and I love J-Malls, but it wasn't an interesting J-Mall. It was the plaintiff simply coming back and saying, Judge, we would like you to amend the prejudgment interest rate that's in the final judgment. What we want you to do is change it from the five-year U.S. T-bill rate to our true cost of borrowing money over the relevant period, which is considerably higher. And Judge Gilstrap declined, but not really on the merits. He said, this is something that should have been presented earlier. So if you've got that kind of argument, you've got to raise that earlier uh, and not wait until there's a final judgment and then say, oh, wait, we uh, forgot to ask. We want to ask for a higher interest rate. We're all used to fighting over interest rates in the context of briefing before the final judgment. So that, that it was not presented the way the court uh, wanted it to be. And these are the kinds of things that sometimes parties overlook. Uh, is there handling everything else that they think is more important in trial, um, coming up from or getting ready for a case, coming down from a case, gets delegated off. Uh, it's important to find these kinds of cases and know this because 
at the end of the day, if there's a big interest gap here, the law firm may be on the hook for that. It was their mistake. Right, right. And, and um, um, you, do, you do have to think ahead on these things and raise them because judges, sometimes the judges are more tolerant than others about raising issues that could have been raised earlier. Uh, but you don't want to be counting on the judge to, as a matter of discretion, reopen something uh, by arguing that there, uh, when it's something that he knows is raised in every case. Uh, he's used to these fights, but that you would let a final judgment get asserted and then raise it, that was the thing that, that was a little unusual. You just kind of need to know how, uh, how flexible your judge is going to be. And flexibility in terms of judges is kind of the theme of another case that we saw this week. And this one is actually over in Sherman. This was a case where the plaintiff filed a uh, uh, trademark case in state court in Collin County. The defendant removed it to Judge Mazant's court in Sherman. And uh, they then amend, take out the federal cause of action and just assert a state trademark claim, not a federal trademark claim. And the defendant screams bloody murder and says, no, this is a transparent effort to avoid federal jurisdiction. Well, with some judges, that works. Uh, some judges uh, really react not well to a party trying to get out of their court. Other judges, they don't mind that uh, you have a right to amend. And what Judge Mazant decided here is he said, look, there's no dispute that they get to amend. No dispute there's not jurisdiction. I do still have jurisdiction. Your actions have not divest, divested me of jurisdiction, but I decline to exercise that jurisdiction over the case. Now, if this case was in front of Judge Cobb 20, 25 years ago, you're staying in federal court, but it's a useful point to know that some judges will exercise their discretion to let the case go back. So that's a, that's a useful one uh, that I'll keep in my back pocket when I'm looking at cases being removed uh, into that judge's court. I kind of know now how he feels about me coming in and saying I've, I've amended to take out uh, the jurisdiction and I want to go back to state court. So Michael, this is the case I, I've been wanting to talk to you about, uh, the gesture case. Um, just basically a series of ex parte uh, re-exams, a request to stay in Gilstrap's court. I, this seems like it was would it be dead on arrival. What what's behind this that would cause somebody to file stays in, a, in an ex parte case with with this fact pattern to well, two months to trial? It, it is an unusual fact pattern because it's not this defendant that filed the cases. There was another case where a different defendant filed four IPRs, and then in this case, this defendant filed four ex parte reexaminations and said, "Look, judge, you've got these eight proceedings going." And Judge Gilstrap denied the motion. He said the defendant hadn't agreed to be bound by the result of any of these proceedings, and the case was at a late stage with trial just two months away. So under these facts, you're not going to get a stay. It is interesting to me that we're seeing more and more situations where defendants are filing uh, ex parte reexaminations, and my interest in that is, well, it's a little less likely to get a stay on that, but it is an interesting thing that I understand we're seeing happening uh, all over the country recently. Well, it's interesting. Ex parte reexaminations have been around since what the mid '80s, um, and were just hated for for 25 years or maybe even longer. And it's interesting to see them 
coming to life again here. Yeah, I, it, it looks like I, I get the impression it looks to the judges like it's just trying to get multiple bites uh, at the apple. Um, and uh, that's I think the judges are seeing it that way. We're not seeing people have a lot of success getting stays based on ex parte re-exams. We had another uh, jury verdict in the Eastern District last week, and uh, interestingly, it was not in Marshall. It was in Tyler. It was a Tyler jury in Judge Jeremy Cronodal's court found for the defendant in this case. Now, the case started out as a copyright infringement, trade secret misappropriation case, having to do with parties fighting over who had control uh, of, a, uh, uh, of a company after one of the owners left and, and moved up to the Northeast. Um, the parties dropped the copyright infringement claims during the trial, and the jury then came back uh, pretty much across the board for the defendant, finding that the, the plaintiff did not have uh, an interest, continued to have an interest uh, in the company. Um, the reason why this is interesting is we don't see, I mean, you and I have tried a couple of cases in Tyler. We don't see a lot of trials over there, so it's good to see that they are still having jury trials, and we have a place to go to kind of see how the judges in Tyler are handling jury trials. How do they, what do they do in their charges? What do they do on their verdict forms? How do they conduct the proceedings? Uh, it's good to see cases going to trial around here. Well, and, and Michael, you, you pointed out something I think that that's telling about these kinds of cases. There were huge wins before the verdict because the, the damages number went from 100 million to 10 million. And sometimes lawyers don't get enough recognition for those big wins before they get to a jury. That's that's correct. The damages claim in front of the jury was 10 million, but the media reports that I saw were that it was originally much higher than that. So uh, the defendant ended up whittling this thing down to the point where they 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 won on essentially everything that was presented to the jury. There was one unusual finding where the jury said that the plaintiff continued to have an equal right to control the company, which is a little inconsistent with the other ones. So I've, I've already seen filings there asking the court to say, well, that's just inconsistent. Uh, so we'll see what the court does on that. But but it is interesting to see we're seeing intellectual property cases going to trial in Tyler, uh, which will keep keep people coming in and and keep kind of keep the system lubricated where you can tell how the judges over there try things. So, Michael, Judge Payne put out two cases, uh, Whirlpool and Atlas on alternate uh, alternative service, what should practitioners be taking away from this to avoid needless motion practice? Well, I think what practitioners need to look at is if you think you've got an argument for alternative service, there's no one size fits all. Figure out what's the right uh, fix for what you're in your case. In one case, he said electronic mail is okay. In the other case, he said Federal Express uh, oh, I guess I should say FedEx. FedEx is okay. So figure out what the best means is for your case and go ask for that. Uh, and, and I mean, at, at, it seems like about every other week we get an order out of some Texas court approving a form of alternative service. So as long as you do your homework, you can get it. Just ask for the, the most logical uh, form of service. Well, it's we, a good reminder for, for defendants Dodging service is not going to be tolerated um, for long. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Nobody's really interested in fighting over adequacy of service. Get your extension and then go ahead and get started. 
Um, and Wayne, we have one last Eastern District case that I wanted to talk about today. So, yep, you're going to have to explain why this one goes in your podcast. <laughs> well, it's a case from the Eastern District of Virginia. Uh, and I don't normally talk about what's happening in the Eastern District of Virginia, but this is kind of an unusual situation. What happened here is you had a North, I'm sorry, Eastern District of Virginia uh, claim construction report and recommendation from a special master uh, to a district judge that was sitting in Norfolk. And the reason why our listeners might be interested in it is who the special master is. The special master is one of Judge Albright's go-to technical advisors, his former law clerk, Dr. Joshua Yee. Now, since the reason why I suggest people read this is because it's sort of like watching game tape. It's like when um, last fall people were talking about the Cowboys cornerback that was uh, getting so many interceptions, and they asked him how he did it, and he said, well, I watch game tape. I see what are the what routes do these uh receivers run what does the quarterback do and kind of find out how they run their offense and that tells me kind of where i want to where i want to go well in this case dr Yi uh, is often a technical advisor for judge albright but we have the same issue that we have in the eastern district when you have a technical advisor and a experienced law clerk with a patent litigation background and a district judge experienced in patent litigation you can't really tease out, well, they they like, they like they have this approach to these types of motions. I get those questions a lot. Well, so-and-so was appointed TA. Does he like or not like? Does he tend to find this? Does he not tend to find this? And I have to tell them, I don't know because there's just too many variables. That's why this is interesting because in this case, Dr. Yee was appointed as a special master in the Eastern District of Virginia, and he generates a report and recommendation to Judge Young with uh, proposed uh, constructions. So you don't have the interference of, well, what is the district's input? Well, what is the law clerk's input? You just have Dr. Yee's input on, here are the cases I think are important. Here's my take on how this happens. Now, it's conceivable that this reflects some input from the district judge, because he might have gone in and said, this is what I'm looking at. Is there anything about this that gives you heartburn? Do you, do you believe in going a different direction on some things here? Uh, so we don't know that, but, but at least it gives us some insight into how Dr. Yee sees things, what he looks at, what he thinks the relative, uh, relevant questions are here. Uh, so I thought that might be of interest to people, even though it's, it's far from, um, the green grass of Texas. Well, Michael, as we, we move north, uh, we, we find two opinions that are pretty good examples of things not to do. Uh, I think so. Uh, they're both opinions by Magistrate Judge David Horan out of the Northern District of Texas. And the first one is over discovery sanctions. And the fight there was that the party had, had not adequately prepared a deponent and in previous orders, the judge had granted the motion to compel and included a fee provision. And it's not a sanction, it's that fees, you get your fees and expenses if the other side's position was not reasonably justified or whatever the, the standard is. Uh, the court noted it had denied a motion to reconsider the order and that the party had filed objections with Chief Judge Barbara Lynn. The parties didn't reach agreement on expenses, so this lengthy order deals with the application for fees, how fee applications work, and then says the appropriate fee award is $1,766.50. But we're not done yet, because they, even that award is stayed pending Judge Lynn's consideration 
the objections to the original order. I, I, why are we fighting over an award of this sort of amount? I think that's the lesson here is, um, I mean, as, as Jerry Spence used to say, when the horse dies, get off. Yeah, um, what, $1,700 uh, is just, what, three hours of time these days on modern billing rates, maybe two? Uh, Oh yeah, and 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 you're going to spend half an hour reading this one opinion, standing alone, not counting the briefing, not counting everything else happened. I mean, it's just, it's just not in anyone's interest to have this much fighting over something uh, this minor. Um, the the numbers were a little bit higher in the other opinion from Judge Moran, and in that case, it was a default judgment in a trademark case. Uh, and there wasn't any issue with the plaintiff's counsel's expenses of about $31,000. But what the court did was mark down the court costs that were that were sought. And this one's a pretty basic mistake. If you're going to seek court costs, the rule is they've got to be in 28 U.S.C. 1920. You can't come in and treat it like litigation expenses. And that's kind of what the plaintiff did here. They had private process servers, postage, online legal research, PACER fees, and the court said that's not enough. So you get $448 in costs. You don't get the $3,000 plus that you were asking for. Now, again, there's a cost to the briefing on this, and there's a cost to having to see what the court does on this that might well exceed what you thought you were going to get. So just pay attention to what the rules are. Um, I, I write in my, my rule book and on my weblog pretty regularly on what's recoverable and what's not so the, as we, we move now south, uh, you get to the other case, which I, in my mind is close to what were they thinking, uh, but it was a request to vacate a, a Markman uh, post-transfer denial. And what's going on here and what kind of bad blood does this type of, of motion where you're attacking another judge cause? Well, it's, it's, um, it's an interesting situation because this is a case that was pending before Judge Albright in the Western District. And I can't recall if this is one that he voluntarily transferred or if it was one that was mandamused, but it, it's an oil and gas case. It went to Judge Hughes in um, the Southern District of Texas in Houston. And the defendant comes in and says, oh, okay, Judge Hughes, we'd like you to vacate Judge Albright's prior claim construction uh, there's this thing that wasn't considered and should have been considered, so please vacate that. And Judge Hughes says, look, I may disagree with how Judge Albright conducts his case management and discovery. I don't like the way the plaintiff has conducted itself. Its conduct has clearly tainted this case, but I'm still, but that's not the test for whether the claim construction is erroneous or whether there's a been a sufficient uh, uh, change to do, justify a departure from the law of the case. So it's kind of an interesting opinion. You can tell the judge is not happy with anybody except the defendant, but now he's not happy with the defendant either for asking him to redo something without giving him a sufficient basis for it. Do you think that causes some, some long-term bad taste in the mouth? <laughs> On the part of whom? I'm going to go with, we'll start with Judge Hughes, and then I'm sure Judge Albright saw this too. Well, the, the, um, I, I don't know. I, 
I don't know that district judges really care what other district judges think about how they run their court. And uh, Judge Judge Hughes has, has got a reputation for being somewhat out, outspoken. So this is actually an extraordinary, well, let me, let me put it this way. On a Judge Hughes scale, this is about a 3-0 in terms of the sorts of things that he might say that, that someone might, might um, uh, get hurt feelings over. It, it could certainly be worse. Um, I don't know to what extent the defendant is going to get dinged, uh, but you certainly start have started loading bad things on your side of the V uh, when previously the judge just didn't like the plaintiff. Well, that takes us a little bit further north uh, to Austin and to Waco um, and to Judge Albright's courts. Um, I guess maybe we should say that just Waco these days, but uh, he's got a, a great named case, the De La Vega case uh, against Microsoft. Uh, pretty interesting motion to dismiss there. Yeah, and, and this is actually a, a kind of an evergreen one in front of Judge Albright. Several years ago in the De La Vega case, when, when Judge Albright was not issuing a lot of written opinions, and early on, very few people were getting orders granting 12B6 motions, he granted one in De La Vega. And every case after that, and I'll plead the fifth as to whether I do it in mine too, but every case after that, we say, Judge, this is just like De La Vega. It's the McDonald's hot coffee case. When you're asserting 12B6 motions, you're saying, well, their pleadings are just like De La Vega. And Judge Albright here said, nope, this is not like De La Vega. And he points out De La Vega was really an extraordinarily poorly pleaded case. It's not the kind of case whose facts you want to point to and say what the plaintiff is doing is just like this, because Judge Albright knows it's not. It's, it's a very, very different situation. So uh, it's, it's fun to cite to De La Vega, but, you know, we, we should be leaving De La Vega behind and focusing a little more on the actual contentions. It's, there just aren't going to be many cases that match up with it. So we, we have another original Waco case that was transferred to, uh, down to Austin, this Neo case. Notably, it was Dell that was a defendant here. Uh, is there anything for the non-Austin giant tech companies to learn from a, a transfer from Waco to Austin? I, I don't know that the giant tech companies can take much from this because Dell has the unique position that they're in the Austin division they're actually in Round Rock, so they're about 20 miles north of Austin, only about 60 miles south of uh, uh, Waco. The, the thing that I took away from this is more from the plaintiff's perspective. Um, Judge Albright kind of took the plaintiff to task for not providing, uh, not identifying witnesses that might be in the division. Don't get, he, they, they didn't give me facts. So even though the factors only tilted slightly in favor of transfer, in this case, the factors that weighed against transfer weren't enough to keep the case uh, in Waco. Um, he also noted here that I'm recognizing that the federal circuits changed the balance a little bit here, so I'm weighing, weighing the practical problems factor uh, a little bit less. You can clearly tell that if it weren't for the federal circuit cases, he would be assigning more, more weight to the fact that he can get to trial quicker than Austin can, but uh, the direction he's been given by the federal circuit is that he can't consider that. So that helps kind of tilt the analysis uh, a little more towards trans transfer. But it's one more data point that we're looking at to see which cases go to Austin and which cases would stay in Waco. 
Well, one other interesting ruling from Judge Albright's this uh, mirror PNC case. It's got two two teachable moments in this: a twelve b six and uh, and a one hundred one determination. So, I pick where you want to start and take us through those. Well, it it was a little unusual in that it you're right. It did raise two things. It raised a basis of collateral estoppel, and Judge Albright kind of waved that one out before it even came in the garage and said, look, the decision you're pointing to was vacated. And at this point, I can't tell that the patents would be sufficiently similar anyway. When he got to patentable subject matter, again, this is like the, the Khajiit case, I think it was last week, where he talked about in the absence of claim construction, I can't make an eligibility determine in this case. Now, he points out, I, Claim construction isn't always necessary to make this determination, but after I look at these terms that have been identified, I, 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 I'm not ready to go forward with saying that this is sufficient uh, to grant a motion to dismiss, especially uh, at this stage where I can tell that the pleadings are sufficient uh, to go past this point. He also provides some very interesting language here talking about when the complaint contains concrete allegations of A, B, and C, then asserted claims can survive a Section 101 motion at the 12B6 stage. So that's this is an order that I would study pretty closely uh, because we've seen orders going the other way from Judge Albright in the last few weeks where he has granted 12B6 motions at the beginning of a case saying, you haven't sufficiently pleaded a plausible case of infringement. Here he thought there was a plausible case of patent eligibility. So again, we're starting to develop a pretty decent little database of 12B6 rulings that tell defendants whether a motion really is likely to be granted or not. Well, and the, the precise language he used, it really should be should be monitored. What, it, what is it? Individual elements in the claimed combination are not well understood, routine or conventional activity. And he referred to that as being a concrete allegation, other courts would would say that that's just a, a summary statement. Right. It's right. a conclusory statement. So that's no, that's that's exactly what I'm talking about. You can see he says if you put this in here, that is enough to survive a section 101 motion in, in the context of Rule 12b6. Uh, other judges would not hold that. And I know from being at pretrials with Judge Albright, when you get down to the pretrial stage and you have an expert stand up and say something like that and there's nothing behind it, your expert's going to get struck. Um, th that's, not, that's not a rare, rare occurrence down there. So uh, he's, you have to recognize there are different, different judges have different standards at, different, at this same stage. So uh, that's why I'm saying you need to study this. Make sure you comply with it but realize that what if you file your case, you get transferred to Austin, you get in front of Judge Y, they may not have the same standards. So you need to be aware that uh, where possible, make sure you've got enough to get, get over the hump with any judge you might be in front of. Well, I know 101 motions are, are trendy and people have to try them because clients demand it, um, but they're not always going to be winners. And it seems like you know, Judge Albright's got a pretty pretty tough standard compared with, for example, the Northern District of California to get out exactly at, this stage. At, the, at an early at this stage. That's absolutely correct. We don't see people having a lot of success with with one hundred and one uh, um, arguments early in cases. But that's it's not like that's news to anyone. 
the news is that we're starting to see some cracks in that early on, some situations where he says, you can't even get past the pleading standard at this stage. We have seen a ruling like that, and the case got dismissed, and to my knowledge, wasn't refiled. Well, Michael, once again, thank you. Uh, the state continues to have all sorts of, of teachable moments every week. Oh, yeah, we do our best. Talk to you next week. All right. Thanks very much. See you then.